Stella made a beat, so it's go time. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Core 4 Podcast. The Core 4 is a podcast under the Grizzly Bear Blues Podcast Network, along with GBB Live and soon-to-be 3ND Podcast. You find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Megaphone, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Grizzly Bear Blues is also a blog under SB Nation. Find them on the web at grizzlybearblues.com. We're on Twitter at SBN Grizzlies. I am your host, Parker Fleming, and with me is none other than Nathan the Killjoy Chester. Nate, what up? I'm not that much of a Killjoy anymore. I've written many positive things here over the last couple months. I'm nothing but positivity. Now, 2017 to early 2019, Nathan, that's Killjoy, Nathan, but that's the past. I'm not that anymore. You know, you, you've preached to me. You've begged me to come up with some other intros for you. So this is just me doing that. And I'm yeah. taking that nickname from Stuart Carter. So it, It's not bad. Um, it's not super accurate. But you're thinking outside the box a little bit, and I appreciate that because Nathan, the chess pass, Chester, and among others, it's getting a little tired, man. you got to spice up your act just a little bit. I'll spice it up. One day you just won't see one coming, and you're, you're, you're going to have to cancel the show. I, I don't remember what you called me on the last show off the top of my head right now, but it was something that made me do a double take, and I started laughing for a minute. Do you remember what it was? Yeah, it was the dark night. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Inside jokes aplenty. Oh, man, they're fun. But anyways, let's get on to this. Uh, you know, it's August. Yeah, we're, what the heck I mean, are the we big, going to talk about? Yeah, I mean, the big thing right now in uh, NBA Twitter is um, Devin Booker calling out people for double teaming and pickup. And I'm just ready for the season to start, man. The fact that we're talking about useless crap like that tells you we're in the month of August. But in fairness, does anyone like being – to be fair, no one likes being double teamed in a basketball game, period. But you're playing in a pickup game. You're probably going at 60 to 70% speed. Why are you double teaming? That, that's my first question when I hear something like that. And I think the dumbest thing I heard out of all of this was um, I don't remember. I think it's a recurrently retired player, but I don't remember who it was off the top of my head. Uh, but he was talking about how Kobe in training camp and Kobe in practice, he would get double teamed and he never complained at all about it. He would always make the play to get out of it. I don't care what Kobe Bryant did. I'm not, I think we would all agree that Kobe Bryant is more of a psychological killer than Devin Booker ever would be, but it doesn't mean that he's soft. It just means he wants to enjoy a pickup game. That's all there is to it. I think people are overthinking it. And also like one thing I'm thinking is if you're calling for a double team in a pickup game, you can't guard your man. You're soft. People want to say he's soft for complaining about the double team. If you call for a double team in a pickup game, there's one of two things. Either one, 
he has hit eight or nine jumpers in a row, and you're trying to do everything you possibly can. He's a god. And as our friend Isaiah said yesterday, not only is he a god, but somebody else in your team is completely incompetent and can't play basketball. So you feel comfortable leaving him. Or option number two, you're soft and you can't guard him. Right. And so um, I actually saw a thing on Instagram. Devin Booker was replying this over to Gilbert Arenas. And I thought it was like a pretty cool like insight to see. Yeah, but like he was playing he was playing pickup with his father like back when he was like 14 years old. And his dad would make him guard 30-year-old men. Mm-hmm. And he would just get taken to the post every time because, I mean, he's a 14-year-old kid. He's not fully developed yet. Yeah. It, and where did the original video come from? Was it Ball is Life? Man, one of those. I have no idea. But he said like he would always look over to his dad. Basically, he's like, dog, help me. And his dad just kind of shrugged, let him. And so Devin Booker just always adopted the mentality. It's like it's a get eat, get eaten or eat world <laughs> or vice versa, whatever. But still, like, yeah, if you can't guard your man, that's on you, especially yeah. in pickup. Yeah, for sure. And just completely overblown. People trying to find things to talk about in August. Uh, it, it, whoever it was, whether it was the Ball is Live crew or some other one of the other popular basketball Twitter accounts, they have a camera guy show up there. And Booker, I don't even know if he knows that the camera is even on him. And he makes this offhanded comment that almost comes across like a joke to Joe Kim Noah saying, why are we double teaming here? This is just a pickup game. We're having fun, something along those lines. And people want to take that offhanded comment from a random pickup game where he probably didn't even know the cameras were on him to try to make some statement about his mentality as a, and his approach as a player. It's just ridiculous. People finding things to talk about like us, like us. Yeah. yeah but you know what? We're not here to talk about pickup basketball and whether it's cool or not to double team and pick up. I mean, you've now you've heard our answer on that, but we actually have a fun topic. One that's fun for August and so this is the Core 4 podcast, named after the brilliant Core 4 of Mark Gasol, Mike Conley, Zach Randolph, Tony Allen. And they rest in peace. And so what we want to do is we want to build a Core 4 of the players not in the legendary Core 4. Hmm. Are you okay. up to the challenge, Nate? Yeah, I think the rules here are pretty simple. So do we want to do this, um, uh, the best players – there, there are multiple different ways we can take this. Do we want to like find the best four players outside of the core four, or do we want to find the four best players that kind of fit together if we were trying to make a team, or are we just trying to find our four personal favorite players outside of the core four? See, I don't, I don't want to go personal because everybody would try to roast me for saying Chandler Parsons or Hamedadati. I would roast you. Mm-hmm. I'm um, getting the shout out in my last little fan fiction piece. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> and so I'm thinking more of just like one, it's a combination of like the best, but also just like iconic. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. Rudy Gay in a vacuum is a better player than Tony Allen. Right. I completely agree. Honestly, I was so let's go ahead and start here. We're starting with Rudy Gay. Yeah, I think you have to start with talent-wise, absolutely. Talent-wise, he should be in the original core four. Um, Talent-wise, he's easily four most talented players in franchise history, right? 
Yeah. And so I was looking at his stats the other day. You know, he's at for his entire career, he's been in the league for about, I think, 13 years, maybe. And his career averages are 17, 5, and 2. And I don't think that's talked about enough. When he went to Sacramento um, after he spent, was he in Toronto for a full year? I believe so. Okay, so after he got to Sacramento, I believe he averaged 22 points a game over a two-season span. Uh, I can admit my own shortcomings when it comes to here. I very easily, back when I was younger, fell in line with the narrative that Rudy Gay and Zach Randolph can't play together. The truth of the matter was there was never really any basis to that. Uh, Rudy Gay struggled um, the half of the season he played and to – yeah, he got traded at the tail end of 2012 that season when they went to the Western Conference Finals. And um, he mm-hmm. he was struggling that year, to be sure. His shooting percentages were down. He was shooting about 40% from the floor. It was rough. And I think that kind of played into that narrative. But for the most part, it had no real basis in reality. The reason people thought that Rudy Gay and Zach Randolph could not play together is because the Memphis Grizzlies beat an injured San Antonio team without Rudy Gay before finally losing to the Oklahoma City Thunder. And the next season, they played a more complete, more talented, that had far more high-end talent team in the Clippers, and they lost in seven with Rudy Gay. We won a playoff series without Rudy Gay, and we had lost one with him, so therefore we have to be better without him. That's kind of ridiculous, but that's pretty much why it was. Right. And I'm looking at his stats right now, and one thing I didn't realize, too, is for one, everybody always gave him crap for, you know, kind of being a ball stopper, which, I mean, when you look at him on the court, you see it because he nev- he wasn't – he was one of those players that when he was creating shots, he wasn't getting assists for his players. He was usually pounding the ball about five or six dribbles and then pulling up from mid-range. But he averaged but when like between that playoff stretch, so like 2010, 2011, 2011, 2012, and then before he left, he averaged 2.8 assists, 2.3 assists, and 2.6 assists. Mm-hmm. Like he was a pretty solid secondary playmaker next to Mike Conley and Mark Gasol. And looks like somebody who, you know, when Mike Conley's off the floor, and something I wish they didn't explore more, it's like actually having Rudy Gay like bring up the ball and like run the offense. But I he also averaged 1.7 steals and 1.5 steals in both those seasons as well. I think um, the year before, uh, uh, the year before 2010, when they experimented with OJ Mayo at point guard, I think that sufficiently scared Lionel Hollins off from doing any more experimentation at the point guard position. Mm-hmm. But it, it, during that time, uh, obviously the difference is Kevin Durant is a far more overwhelming and efficient scorer. But Kevin Durant was averaging about the same amount of assists during that span. So this idea that Rudy Gay was just this absolute black hole who could not possibly create for his teammates whatsoever was never – Rudy just really got a bad rap just all the way around during his time in Memphis. And maybe it's because expectations became too high. He had a solid rookie year. And then the second year he explodes for 20, 20 points and five rebounds a game. And you think he's going to become a superstar Wayne player. And really that was the best he ever became. He really has not improved that much since his second season in the league. But that was still a very, very good player. And ever since the Grizzlies have traded him, they were looking for a player like him. 
to help complement the Grizzlies core four and they never found it. Mm-hmm. Knowing what you know now, like what happened with the core four Grizzlies, would you have kept Rudy Gay instead of oh. Zach Randolph or Tony Allen? That's a tough one. Um, See, here's my thing. But here's my thing. Knowing the way the league went, I wouldn't have traded Rudy Gay so quickly. But even with the way the league was going, the Grizzlies were still able to find strength in being anachronistic, if that makes sense. They were still able to find success by going against the grain. Um, Eventually, um, after 2015, the league started to leave them behind, and that was very obvious that following season. But there were still good years with Zach Randolph as your starting power forward. And the reason the Grizzlies chose Randolph over Rudy Gay is because Randolph is the better player. Right. I don't think there was ever really any doubt about that. He was the more efficient player. And, but then again, when Zach had the knee injury in the latter part of 2011, he was never really fully the same again. He was still very effective. He was still great from mid range, still a very good rebounder. Um, but that's the point. He was very, very good, even managed to make an all star appearance after that. But people forget how dominant he was from 2009 to 2011. And after that knee injury, he was never that again. I, I agree with you. And so, so it, It's a definitely a tough question. Um, if you were to put it out on Twitter and say you'd rather have taken Rudy Gay, that would be blasphemous um, for sure. Right. But, there's definitely an argument to be made. I honestly don't think the long-term or even the short-term success of the team would have really been any different, maybe a little bit less. Right. I feel that. I feel that. I mean, it does, like there is an argument just because, for one, the Grizzlies haven't found his replacement yet. It has been five years since the trade, and they have not found an athletic small forward that can put the ball on the floor, score for himself, and create for others. Um, but also too, I think a bigger part of the argument was that you should have never just should have never just traded him in the first place. Like they actually had a legitimate shot to win an NBA title, and they just wanted to dodge luxury tax, and that's the real reason they traded Rudy Gay. They wanted to avoid the luxury tax. They could have traded him in the off season. It, it's a flaw, the uh, luxury tax situation. That's a flaw that both the Grizzlies and the Thunder felt victim to. Um, it's very easy to talk yourself into when it came to James Harden or it came to Rudy Gay and say, um, yeah, they're good, but they're not as efficient as our other top guys. Um, so for the sake of the luxury tax and we could spend the narrative and we could still bend, uh, build a championship contending team without them. Let's just move on when the truth of the matter is you're going to have to pay if you want to put together a title contending roster in the NBA. That's always been the case, and that's the case now. And the truth of the matter is that Lionel Hollins never found the way to properly maximize Rudy Gay along with Zach Randolph. And Rudy was too talented to not be able to find a way to do that. And that's one of his failures. And it's on Sam Presti and it's on Scott Brooks for not finding a way to properly do that with James Harden while he was there. Mm-hmm. And so, and a, a big thing in that too is Antonio did in that Western Commerce Finals is they just they just never guarded Tony Allen or Tayshawn Prince. They collapsed and basically doubled Zach Randolph and Marcus Gasol, clogging the lanes for Mike Conley. 
And as a result, I'm almost positive that the Grizzlies' leading scorer that series was Quincy Pondexter. I think he was. I think he scored. He scored 20 in both of the final two games that series. Did he not? He averaged. He scored 22 in the final game, and he averaged 15 points and shot 48 percent from three on six attempts. And I'll never forget thinking about how he was going to grow into an elite role player the following year, and it just never really materialized. <laughs> Still a little bit. Uh, for more reasons than one. For more reasons than one. Okay, David Yeager, relationship with him was not super good. I think we can agree on that. But if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But I think we talked about this the other day, you and I. Um, I do not think it's even a hot take to say the Grizzlies would have made the NBA Finals in 2011 as an eight seed if Rudy Gay had been healthy. Because the way San Antonio's roster was struck, San Antonio was probably – as far as being built for the playoffs, that was one of the worst one seeds in NBA history. They were also dealing with injuries at the time, but their roster just top to bottom and how it was constructed, they were just not ready to go. Um, if you play Rudy Gay in that series, not only do they not have anyone that guard Zach Randolph, who's going to guard Rudy Gay, injured Manu Ginobili, Gary Neal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was rough. And like you were talking about, uh, Memphis had been a terrible matchup for Dallas um, all year long. And I, I'm not convinced Memphis would have beaten Dallas if they'd managed to get past OKC. But you had Rudy Gay back into the mix. And, uh, well, Sean Marion would have to guard Rudy Gay. And then you're going to put Dirk Nowitzki on Zach Randolph? And exactly. that would not, yeah, that was my argument. Yeah, and that wouldn't that would not only not affect him on the defensive end, that would affect Dirk's offense too from taking the beating that he would take every single possession. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I want to move on to another underappreciated Grizzly great for this. That's Pau Gasol. Oh yeah, obviously. Yeah, he. I think one thing that really killed his rep in Memphis was that he demanded a trade. Here's the truth, and I'm sure there will be some that will disagree with me, but talent-wise, he is – well, not now, but at his peak, he's better than Marcus All. A better player. And frankly, this narrative that began to spring up that Pau Gasol was soft near the end of his Grizzlies tenure and that Marcus Gasol was the opposite of that – It's kind of more the other way around. (laughs) Well, fun fact, Pau Gasol's rebounding numbers are better than Marc Gasol's. Oh, easily. Always have. numbers. Uh That's what was really weird to me is that, like, Pau was considered the soft one, yet he was pulling down 2010s nearly every night. Like, his all-star year, he averaged 21 and 10. Mm -hmm. I think think Pau is a little bit more of a – outgoing complainer when he's on the court. I think he whined a little bit more than Mark had traditionally has. And the fact that he was the face of the franchise and they could never even win a single playoff game in three trips, it makes you take a hard look at the leader and say, what's wrong with him? Um, He's got to be solved. That's what it's got to be. It's not his talent. He's a really good player. He's an all-star caliber player. What's wrong with him? He has to be solved. Mm-hmm. Right, and also like in his spot in the in this little core four, people forget he led the Grizzlies to their first 
ever string a playoff series. He's granted. I didn't think it was more of like talent. I just thought they got bad matchups. I mean, they faced a San Antonio Spurs team that had won the title the year before. They faced a unbelievable San, uh, Phoenix Suns team. And that was the first year Steve Nash won MVP. And then they faced Dallas in a 4-5 matchup. And that 4-5 matchup was the last season that they had it to where the top three seeds had to be division winners. So I remember, I think it was like Denver had like 44 wins or something stupid like that, but they won their division. So they were the three seed and Dallas had won like 60 plus games and had to be the four seed. Yeah. It, it's still, I don't have the, um, the stats from that era right in front of me right now, but it's still, to this day, I don't understand why the Grizzlies were so inept. And like you said, they had bad matchups, but they were always a very good defensive team. I think um, I, they were top 10 at defensive efficiency all three of those years. They were known as a strong defensive team. Um I don't know how they ranked offensive efficiency wise, but you go down their starting lineup, let's say from 2000, the 2003, 2004 season. Yeah. Jason Williams, uh, Mike Miller, who didn't start at that point, but he's your six man. He played starter minutes. You had Shane Battier. So that's three perimeter shooters right off the bat there. Yeah. Pal Gasol playing the four who um, he is, who he is. And Lorenzo Wright would give you a solid 10 points a game right there. So they seem to have some offensive firepower and they were a strong defensive team. And I mean, it's the playoffs. It just never really seemed to make any sense as to why they couldn't hang. Yeah, it was really weird. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I always think about how that Grizzly team, was built for the modern NBA. Mm-hmm. They I mean, were a little had, yeah. Not necessarily the 05-06, but that first playoff run, you had Jay Will, Earl Watson, Mike Miller, James Posey, Shane Battier, Pau Gasol, uh, Lorenzen Wright, Bonzi Wells, Stromile Swift, all these guys like built for the modern NBA. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Too many to play during that time. I, absolutely. And so... Yeah. And I I think it's just, it's almost a little bit unfair. Um, I think, and obviously there are many people who didn't become true Grizzly fans until the grit and grind era, which is fine. Uh, That is what it is. But these were good teams with good players on them. And I don't think they're remembered with the same level of fanfare that they should probably deserve. Um, No one, I think Jeff Calkins said when the Grizzlies moved from Vancouver to Memphis, and I think he wrote a column and said they'll be here for three years, then they'll be gone. And, like, in the span of three years, they were a 50-win team and a consistent playoff team. That's not something that was supposed to happen here. And I don't think that group is remembered with the respect and fanfare they deserve. Now, should they get as much as the grit and grind era Grizzlies should? Of course not. That group was able to accomplish far more together than that group ever was. But I think we can remember them, like you said, as a group ahead of its time and a group that probably just ran into a lot of bad luck. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so right now we have Rudy Gay, Pau Gasol, Nate, what should the next one be? 
Shane Battier is an easy one because Shane Battier is kind of the bridge connecting the two eras. And I still, to this day, think that he probably had the single most impactful shot in franchise history. Uh, At the end of game one in the 2011 series against San Antonio, he hit the three to put the Grizzlies up and that ended up winning them the game. If Battier doesn't hit that shot, they lose that game and they very well end up losing the series because of it, because obviously the team that wins game one goes on to win about 80% of the time. So if Battier doesn't hit that shot, grit and grind, it probably still happens in some form or fashion, but it's hard, it's hard to imagine it happening in the same way without the takeoff that was the 2011 playoffs. And he is the added bonus of being one of the major contributors on the first Grizzlies core that made the playoffs. So that neat little bridge connecting the two eras should easily put him in there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I completely echo everything you say. But also, too, he was the first real fan favorite in Memphis. Mm-hmm. I mean, aside from Lorenzen Wright, but I mean, Lorenzen Wright is born and raised here. This is the first, like, non-Memphian Grizzly fan favorite. Yeah, I'd say that's I remember the city was so sad when they traded him on draft night for Rudy Gay. Yeah, yeah. I, and I, I think most people understood that it was – probably the right move to make because the Grizzlies were starting to pivot towards a total rebuild um, with trading Pau Gasol, but they hadn't traded him yet. They haven't traded him yet. He was traded the following year. So at the time, I think, I think the writing was on the wall for Pau Gasol at that point um, as we can look back in retrospect, but at the time, you look at that and say, well, you're getting Pau Gasol back healthy after he missed most of the previous season, or we're not going to try to reload and get to the playoffs. And you trade Shane Battier, a fan favorite, who has been a key contributor for years for Rudy Gay, complete rookie. And I think that that's probably an indication that there were rumblings from Pau Gasol long before everyone else started to hear them. So maybe they were going, to, maybe they were trying to go ahead and prepare for that eventuality. Yeah, I completely agree with you there. So, Nate, I think the last one, last one, it can go a lot of different directions, but I want to go with Mike Miller. And so what most people don't know about Mike Miller, well, for one, I think he was probably the first player, a non-rookie, to win a player award. So he won sixth man of the year mm-hmm. back in 05-06. Did he, win that, shooter. did he win that twice or just that year? Just that year. Yeah. But also, too, he played on like three different era Grizz teams. So he was on the first playoff team. And then he was like co-piloting with um, Rudy Gay in that little rebuild year because he was averaging like 16, 17, 18 points a game. Like he was proving himself to be a really good scorer at all three levels. And then they traded him on draft night to get OJ Mayo. And then about five years later, he came back and was on the GNG Grizzlies as a – that was a revelation that year, man, because he was like always known as, like, not healthy at all. Played every and single game. Was all 82. Mm-hmm. That, that's still amazing to me to this day to know that out of everybody on that team, he was the only player on that roster, I believe, that year who played all 82 games – was healthy the entire year, had no real health concerns, and uh, 
was a, a good contributor in the playoffs. I want to say it was a game four that went to three overtimes in Oklahoma City, which every game in that series went to overtime except for game seven, I think. Um, but in game four, I want to say he had like 12 or 15 points in the first half, was just lighting it up from beyond the arc. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so are there? I think the only other person you should really consider – for this spot in the core four of non-core four players, it's probably Lorenzen Wright. I think so. I, I think I think you tie back to some of the Memphis legacy. Um, he's a Memphis kid, born and raised, played at the University of Memphis. Um, probably more of Memphis's favorite son than anybody on this list that we've talked about. And when he – how many years ago has it been since he died? It's been almost – it's about been eight probably. Mm-hmm. It's been that long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the city was in a period of mourning for a few days, and they found out about him because um, I think it was John Calipari who said it best, said, uh, when you hug the city, they'll hug you back. And it wasn't as simple as Lorenzen just hugging the city. He was the city. He was a Memphis kid, as Memphis as anybody who lives there. And for him to have been as impactful as the way that he was through his time at the University of Memphis, his years as a starting center for the Grizzlies, and to have it end the way that it did is just very tragic. But he'll always he'll always be a central figure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Man, we're really insane today. You're really just echoing everything I'm thinking right now. This is just historical stuff. We can have more hot takey class stuff when it comes to how many points John Moran is going to average, uh, whether Kyle Anderson or Jay Crowder should be the starting small forward this coming year. But this is just a little bit of a time to reminisce, a little bit of a time to reflect. That's what we're doing right now. And that's good. That's what August is for. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I want to wrap it up with this question. And it's a question that obviously many people are probably thinking right now is how quick will it take for Jaron Jackson Jr. and John Moran to to crash this list right here? Hmm. I guess we just start talking about which player we would take off first. Honestly, Jaron could take paddle off this year. That's the hot take. Mm, I don't know about Powell. I don't know about Powell. Here, here's Maybe, I think he might take off but Shane, but I don't know about Mark or Powell. The reason I say that is because I'm not saying I expect this, but somebody has to score the ball on this team. Now, I think you could make a reasonable case that Valanciunas will be the leading scorer, or heck, even John Morant might be the leading scorer. I wouldn't be dissatisfied with that. But with that in mind, and the fact that we've seen a lot of good looks at uh, Jaron Jackson this summer, he's done some work with Team USA. He's had six months to just stay in the weight room and get stronger. Would I be shocked if he came in next year and averaged 21, 22 points a game, which is more points than Pau Gasol ever averaged at Grizzly? uniform and the Grizzlies won't make the playoffs next year but that just means he'll have the same amount of playoff wins as Pau Gasol had in the Grizzlies uniform <laughs> so yeah. from, from a personal accomplishment standpoint they could stand on relatively equal ground after this year now of course Gasol was the face of the franchise for six or seven years or you know, six to eight years and Jaron can't quite match that yet. But from a personal accomplishment standpoint, he could be right there. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think with Jaron, it's going to take at least like a year. I think he can trash it next year, but I think it'll more likely be about year three or four for him just because it's like, okay, he's proven that he's actually like really legit and he can be a perennial all-star, all-NBA player, but also the face of the franchise. I think both of them, I think they just got to make the playoffs first. Mm-hmm. You know, that, That'll probably be the main thing to start moving pieces like this off the board because – I view them, players like Ja and Jaron, you have to view them in a pretty different light than you would Shane Battier or Mike Miller. Um, Battier and Mike Miller formed the fiber of the franchise. They're part of the foundation, and they also helped build it here in recent years. Uh, ja and Jaron represent the chance for something greater. They represent the chance to be the greatest of them all. In 10 years, we very well may look back on John Morant, Jaron Jackson, and God willing, they'll still be in Grizzlies uniforms. We may look back on those two, and we may view them as far greater than the core four ever was. If they win a championship together or they become true championship contenders together, that very well could be the case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to close with a very deep quote. You ready for this? I'm ready. The core four, these non-core four players here, they walked – so that Jaron and Ja could run. <laughs> they really did. They really they did. did. Yes, sir. So I, Nate. I, you, know, you know what? Actually, I kind of disagree with that. And I could tie it back to something. The Vancouver Grizzlies. Oh, their, yeah. And their teal unis who were terrible year in and year out, whose most shining accomplishment during their years in Vancouver in the late 90s was beating – they beat the 73 win Bulls on an off night, did they not? The 72 Maybe. win Bulls, excuse me. I think they beat the 72 win Bulls that year. That was the greatest accomplishment of that franchise during that year. That's all they have to hang their hat on. They walked so that John Jaron could 20 years later be wearing their uniforms and they could run. I love it. I love to hear it. That was a good. That was good. You so love. Nate, do you have anything to plug in? Uh, my name is Nathan Chester. You can follow me on Twitter at Big Nate Chester, and you can find all my Grizzlies related content at grizzlybearblues.com. Sounds good. Like he said, follow him at Big Nate Chester. Follow me on Twitter at Paca underscore Flocka. Read all of our content at grizzlybearblues.com. Awesome stuff. Really getting you through the dog days of the offseason over here. And also find the core four GBB live and soon the three and D podcast on the Grizzly Bear Blues podcast network on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Megaphone, or wherever you get your podcast. Don't, with wait. That, Don't wait. Don't hesitate. You'll find them. Yes, sir. And that's all, folks. 